0: Welcome to the Trails Around the World podcast. Each episode inspires you with a new idea for a long-distance trail or an adventure, someplace interesting in the world that you can discover. We tell you why you want to go and tell you how to make the dream a reality. Joe Gugliometti, welcome to the Trails Around the World podcast. Thank you for joining me on this episode. And today we will talk about the Main Island Trail. Main Island Trail is different from the other trails that I've discussed on this podcast, most obviously because it's a water trail. In fact, my understanding is it's the first water trail uh, or the original water trail. Mm -hmm. And the way it works is that there's a nonprofit organization that makes deals with Private islands and public islands along the main coast. People join the organization and are able to access information about those islands and at the same time agree to responsible use of those islands following leave no trace principles. And the organization maintains the islands to some degree, keeps an eye on them, and there's a large element of stewardship involved in that interaction, in that relationship. Did I get that right?
1: That is all correct. There uh, is also the Main Coast Heritage Trust, which is another organization that maintains separate islands okay. uh, that are also considered part of the trail. That's one thing to clarify: is that the trail is not a defined, specific path. Right. That you can you can create different varieties of stops and campsites along your way, depending on how you want to move along the coast of Maine. A big reason for that is that the shape of the coast of Maine is jagged. There are a lot of necks and archipelagos and islands that make it so that you can draw different lines on your way. So you may end up not exclusively using the Maine island trail associations, islands but yet still complete the coast of maine but everything you said is is accurate so that and the Maine island trail association certainly is you know you could you could do the entire coast only using their island there and their in quotes because you did explain it well that they don't own the islands but they do maintain the islands and another thing they do that's important is they update annually a guide to the coast including details about the islands that they upkeep and you know with a membership to their organization you you get a hard copy and also access to an uh, app that's a guide to the islands and they will also include some information about the main coast heritage Trust islands and then beyond those two organizations there are state owned and community run islands that are campsites and then private campsites that you can pay along the way so there's there's many ways to connect the dots. Once again, right. but I do I do like that you were use the word steward. That's that's um, that's a great word, and I think they really they use that well. So it's really a partnership, and you'll see along the coast the most heavily used islands that Maine Island Trail Association is a steward of will actually have caretakers who live there, so they are a liaison between users and the organization, and I think that's a great resource. So they're really proactive about teaching leave no trace ethics and skills that you might need and some of the natural habitat kind of identifying what, what's around you. And I, I really like that they do that. They pay someone to be there on those really uh, heavily used islands. So, Joe, tell us something about your background and your adventure resume. So adventure resume is something I have not officially put together, perhaps because it's an adventure resume. So it's it's mostly um, my adventures have been less structured than locating a trail and hiking it, but I've had plenty of adventures. I'd say growing up, I was certainly an outdoors person. my My dad worked in the outdoor industry and I was exposed to that. I was taken camping before I really knew what it was and I've always been very comfortable in the outdoors, and I I think the first thing I would put on that resume is that I was a Peace Corps volunteer in Zambia, and that brought plenty of adventures. Being in a rural, sub-Saharan African country, there just existing was, was an outdoor adventure most of the time with unique challenges and being an American in that environment, my skill level rose quickly just with understanding how to exist in the natural world in a place where existence itself took a lot of energy every day. Everything from diet to fending off certain insects to maintaining shelter. And, you know, it was a very beautiful experience. And within that, I, I found a lot of adventures, mountain biking and hiking, places that weren't necessarily um mapped very well. I would at that point use the satellite to kind of figure out where I wanted to go and, and go and meet people along the way. Then uh, I got more, I've been a paddler for a long time, but I got more into sea kayaking when I returned from being overseas and t- kind of took it to the next level where I, I got a lot of training. I became a main guide. I became an ACA instructor, eventually a BCU Certified paddler, and I started to find a lot of paddling adventures. The most notable was that I went down to uh, Fiji and paddled around Kandavu Island. I did a solo, unsupported circumnavigation of Kandavu Island, which is remote. I camped in the villages along the way, and that was quite an eye-opening adventure. The the people of Fiji are I think what a lot of us aspire to be culturally, they they really are connected to nature in a special way and by necessity, but also by, by culture. And they have a way of approaching the natural world that I learned a lot from just the way they treat the coral reef, the way they treat the hillside. It has to be in a sustainable way because there's limited land, there's limited resources and, right. So remote that you can't depend on importing things. You have to really, when you're in an Pacific Island nation, you have to take care of your your land and and yourselves without an expectation that you're going to have a boatload of resources coming in. So just being around that, I spent a month in Fiji. It was a I I spent a lot of time not paddling as well, just learning from the villagers and going to the school and listening to some of the chiefs talk about what they do, and uh, I had a really positive experience, and that was that was probably my biggest paddle adventure so far. And some others that are more minor, but were very exciting. A friend of mine and I circumnavigated Manhattan, which is kind of a juxtaposition with what I just described, but also a beautiful trip, because to paddle around one of the most densely populated places was, I, I guess I forget that no, no matter how much we pile humanity into one space, the natural world is still there and to paddle around Manhattan, but realize that it's replete with nature, you know, that, and that we coexist with nature, even in those places. It was, it was a really beautiful thing. And how then long did the, take you? Oh, <laughs> how long did oh, it yeah. take to paddle around Manhattan? It was an interesting, it was an interesting trip. I, you know, the tide is super important there because yeah. you have the Hudson River and the East River. Both have powerful currents. And Spite and at the north end, right? Right. And so the friend of mine and I, she's also a guide and a good paddler. And we actually took a tandem kayak because we figured, right. let's just use a tandem. It'll be a little faster. And we made a good, we actually looked up the, the um, I believe it was a Columbia University crew team's tide Current diagram because they had mapped out really accurately. Right. And we planned the trip really specifically around the tide. But then the morning we were going to leave, or it was actually the evening before we were going to leave, we found out that there was going to be a regatta in the Hudson River. And they were actually going to close the New York side of the river starting, I believe it was like 8 a.m. And we realized we couldn't, we had to switch directions. We were originally going to go counterclockwise, but now we had to go clockwise. So we had to leave early but then we managed to have to race up the Hudson then fight the tide in the Harlem River but then we also hit the maximum ebb tide in the East River so when we came through the notorious Hell Gate it was it's like class 3 whitewater wow. which was super fun but also the timing of the it increased I think how fast we went because we had to race up the Hudson and then we also flew down the East River so ultimately, it was about seven hours, which it's 32 miles, so that's that's moving pretty quick. Yep. In a in a sea kayak, although it was a double, so it was a bit faster. So yeah, it was it was a little fast forward button on the East River. Roosevelt Island was kind of a blur because we yeah. dropped down so quickly, but it was a lot of fun. And finally, the other most aside from the story we'll talk about with the trail, yep. the other I'd say most interesting paddle adventure was uh, last fall a friend of mine and i paddled out to a remote island off of maine called mount desert rock Uh which is about 25 miles south of mount desert island right there's a lighthouse there and a research station and i'd been moderately obsessed with paddling out there for about a year right and knew, knew that it would be a bit risky just because it's the high seas and in order to get there you have to paddle at least 15 miles open water one way so we, we made a plan and uh, we got out there and back and it was quite a rewarding trip to, to make it to an isolated island it was the first time I've paddled to something I couldn't see when you first set out it's far enough over the horizon that you have to just paddle to a Compass bearing, and, a, and an hour later, you can start to see a little speck on the horizon. That was that was pretty cool. Yeah. So in Fiji, how did you
0: tackle the boat issue? Did you did you rent from an outfitter there? Did you take take a folding kayak or?
1: There is a there's a an outfitter that has kayaks on the north side of Kandavu, which is the island I went to, and I contacted the company that runs tour the company runs tours around the world they're based in new zealand and they use guides they hire guides in fiji to take people primarily out to the the coral reef on kayak trips and so they had mostly tandem kayaks but also a couple of solos and so i went and the kayak was there but i brought a lot of my gear Mm-hmm. And it was super cheap to rent it. So yeah, they basically they I think they it was like 200 bucks for a month. I mean it was like wow. crazy cheap. And ultimately, you know I I still keep in touch with the host family I stayed with the the host family I stayed with when I arrived and when I left on Kandavu Island. Um, they they really helped me before I went out to understand the culture and the sea, what I was getting myself into and so although I, uh, I never hired them, I certainly also, you know, gave them a bit of money just right. because they really gave me a lot of their time. And I, that's not something they really wanted, but it felt appropriate. Right. So that was beyond the rental cost, but certainly, you know, something I was happy to do. But yeah, the boat was there, which was very convenient. I originally, I originally was going to paddle around a different island, and I was trying to negotiate bringing a three-piece kayak... Mm -hmm. through nigel dennis kayaks but it didn't work out and it also was going to be a bit difficult logistically to put it on the airplane Yep. so and then i thought about folding kayaks but i'm not really accustomed to them i really wanted something i knew i knew pretty well as far as equipment i just haven't used folding kayaks enough to be out in the pacific ocean and feel comfortable so I didn't want to go that route, but I do. I do recommend people check them out because they are a way to travel and paddle.
0: They've been crossing oceans since 1957.
1: <laughs> exactly. Uh, actually, yeah.
0: no. Since the 1920s, there was the guy with the who crossed the Atlantic in the Klepper in 1920 something. But then he mm-hmm. he was lost at sea when he got near the uh, near the Americas.
1: Yeah, the Klepper is a yeah, famous boat. That's definitely one for people to check out who are, who are interested in folding kayaks.
0: Klepper, of course, is German-made long-haul kayaks. Uh, builds a very similar boat in the United States. Yes.
1: Yeah. So, what about paddling makes you love doing it? First of all, I love this question. I recently took stock of who of all the important people in my life and realized that. About 90% of the people in my life, friends, ex relationships, they're all paddling related. And I realized that, you know, the first, the primary thing that I love about paddling is how many people I have encountered, how many friendships I've built through paddling in different ways, all at this point, you know, around the world, but definitely up and down the coast of Maine at this point. I I have so many friends that I met because of paddling. So it's a way, I think, and I'm a pretty independent person and definitely do a lot of things solo, but paddling is one of those things where when you're doing it solo, you build a bunch of relationships. So it's ironic in that sense, but positive in that sense. And I feel like the people I, I meet are similar to me because they're, Engaged in paddling for similar reasons, which it's it's an activity that layers so many interesting things. But you know, from the physical, the physical being, you know, using your body a certain way, being in shape, the athleticism of it, the skill side. That there's there's always more to learn and a better way to do something and a way to fine tune how you do it, technique and skill the wisdom it brings the more experience you have the more you understand this deeper connection to what's going on around you and that leads into the another thing that's amazing about it which is the connection to such a dynamic environment especially the sea it's when I teach people kayaking I like to ask them because a lot of people come with lake and river paddling experience but they've never paddled on the ocean and that's why they're taking a class is they there's something inherent about the ocean to them that they think like i need to learn more and i ask them like what do you think the difference is and what we usually land on is that it's dynamic it's a place where there are so many layers that you can learn about from tide to weather to the natural world and other people who are using the ocean for different purposes and so many layers going on paddling sort of this, this way to go about that in a very quiet way, very deliberate and quiet way where you're weaving through this world. And like you, I, I sail as well, but there's, there's really no other way I think to get, get into that environment like paddling. You can just exist there so quietly and view it sort of from this perspective that you're not really disturbing anything. So you, you're you seeing it from the least um, intrusive perspective I think that, that's possible. And at this point, yeah, it's it's truly a, one of the most important things in my life is, is paddling. Right. What is special about traveling
0: by kayak? You already touched on that essentially, but. Uh...
1: Sure. I, I think that in addition to everything I said, what's special about it is that the kayak is, when you really get into it, I know we'll talk a bit about boats, but the kayak is incredibly versatile. It, it's really one of the best best ways to be on the ocean and be secure. It's one of the best rough water boats, really when when things get rough and you have energy and skill and experience, you can, you can be on the ocean in conditions where other people cannot with power boats and with sailboats. And I know that from sailing, like there are days when I'm in my sailboat and I get nervous and I wish I was in my kayak because I know the limit to both and the limit in the kayak is so much more intense As far as wave height and wind speed, it's an incredible craft when it Mm -hmm. comes to handling what what the ocean can bring sometimes unexpectedly. So I think that's one of the most special things about it. Is I know year round in almost all conditions that I could do a certain type of paddle trip and be on the water and and be successful because the boat is so versatile right how long have
0: you been paddling you said you got into it when you came back from peace corps
1: well i i've been paddling since i was in high school Mm -hmm. i became more serious about it after i returned from the peace corps but but i had been a competent paddler Really, since high school, you know, in high school, my friend invited me on a trip he was doing with the Boy Scouts. I think I was 15. And it was a total immersion. I know this now because I teach kayaking, but it was a total immersion situation where day one, we we had a guide. And we all started with like the wet exit, the rescue, rescue, self-rescue, T-rescue, bracing, lots of things that when I teach students, it takes, you know, A month or so to get to all these things but this was a day one here we go we're gonna do all of these things and we were young so I think we were picking it up real quickly so we started on Squam Lake in New Hampshire and did all that stuff practiced camping that night on Squam Lake on one of the islands and then the for the next three days we went out into Casco Bay in Maine and camped and paddled so I was hooked I was because I grew up in Maine and I never had a boat growing up and I looked at the islands longingly and now I realized oh my god I can get there with a kayak like I can put whatever I want in this boat and go to these islands and this is just mind-blowing so that's when I started and over the years I certainly you know we pretty quickly my friends and I bought Derek Hutchinson's book which at the time was the go-to kayak book and we learned how to roll by looking at the drawings, and yep. we, we're, so we were, you know, we were serious about about being safe and knowing what we were doing. But it wasn't really until I got back from Peace Corps that I sought out formal instruction and really wanted to to learn more and be on the water a lot. So those are the two two answers the one answer is 20 like 24 years the other answer is probably seven years
0: Uh switching focus to the main island trail in one to three sentences please tell us why we should want to experience the trail what makes this 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 trail or as you said it's uh it's it's called a trail it's it's a different idea than hikers are sometimes used to but what makes it special
1: There are so many things that make it special. We touched on a little bit how, with what you just said, it's a bit loosely defined, which gives you the ability to be creative with it and see particular things that you're interested in as far as coastline and communities along the way and what the natural world has to offer. That's different depending on how you draw the lines. It also is unique in that you can make it last different amounts of time, and I know you have a few questions about that coming up, but you, know, you, can, you can make it a month, you can make it much less depending on your reasons, but that's certainly a special thing about it. But ultimately, you know, what makes it worth going out into in the first place is, in my opinion, if you travel the coast, the East Coast, from Florida up to Maine, no offense to the rest of the East Coast, but when you get to Maine, it's different. It's suddenly a transition from primarily sand, a lot of sand and a lot of bar islands and the intercoastal waterway and pretty heavily populated areas to this granite shoreline that's it's long peninsulas, it's archipelagos, it's super interesting rocky cliffs and ledges, and suddenly, suddenly the east coast, when you get to Maine, just it becomes so detailed and interesting, and it's very worth getting under those cliffs, in a kayak in particular, and looking up and Then the communities along the way, and Maine is a place where we have, especially as you go farther northeast, we have true fishing communities, places where people are living off of the ocean. Now, of course, there's always going to be a bit of tourism involved as well, but people you encounter who really have this relationship with the natural world that almost feels like you're in a place with a more indigenous culture, people who are really connected to what the ocean is doing that day and how they're going to approach it and what the resources that they're after and how they're gonna keep it sustainable. That kind of stuff, it happens along the main coast in a way that I haven't really experienced in other places along the East Coast. And I talk primarily about the East Coast because I really have spent limited time on the West Coast, so I don't want to compare but that's what's special it's to give a good example i i led a trip last year up in muscongus bay which is a unique place in maine i highly recommend people check out and uh, the people on my trip were two high school students from belgium and they had come to visit a friend that they knew who had been over As an exchange student with them and I asked them because we started the trip where we launched and we started paddling into Muscangas Bay and asked them about their experience in the United States and they said they had they had arrived in Boston the night before and then driven to Maine pretty much slept on the way woke up and came to this trip and I realized that this was the first piece of the United States they'd ever experienced It was Muscongus Bay in Maine. And it just (laughs) occurred to me, if this is your impression of the United States, like you are going to love the United States. And I just thought of all the other places they could have been where their impression would have been very different. And that was one of those moments where it occurred to me, like this is a place people need to experience. This is part of our country and it feels incredibly special and unique. So that's a place when we talk about if you need if you have time constraints and you really need to pick and choose, I'd highly recommend Muscongus Bay now that we're on the topic as uh-huh. a destination.
0: Yeah, I mean, simply put, the main coast is spectacular. It's that is the simple way to put it, yeah. It's incredibly beautiful. Okay. And as you're saying, it's it's wild in a way that, that people don't think of the east coast of the United States being. Absolutely. Yeah. How did you learn about this trail?
1: I I grew up on the coast of Maine. I knew the coast pretty well from traveling by land and looking out at the coast or standing on it. But growing up, I didn't spend a lot of time on the water. When I was a kid, we would get on the water by taking the ferry and just riding it around. And that was a way to see the islands. And in Casco Bay, there's a pretty active ferry service. So we would take the mail boat and it would take us out for about two hours and stop at the islands. And sometimes we'd run off and run back on the ferry to say we'd been on that island. And I didn't didn't know the portions of the coast beyond Acadia National Park uh, until very recently. So my, my understanding of the coast beyond Acadia was all through books I used to have I used to be really interested in lighthouses and ships and so I had books about the coast of Maine and I would look at all the pictures and think I'd love to go there one day I'd love to be out at places like Isle that are way out at sea and look so different from Casco Bay which is what I was used to and over time I learned a lot more by becoming a guide and doing work with different companies. So I would particularly go to Castine and work with Castine Kayak Adventures and lead trips around Castine and down in Stonington, which are beautiful places. Then working with Midcoast Kayak, which is Muscongus Bay and spending a lot of time there and doing some other trips, traveling to different places on the coast. And then with friends, of course, traveling up and down and paddling sections of the coast, camping, and in 2016, my friend and I paddled, section paddled from uh, New Hampshire up to Winter Harbor, and that was through different seasons, so we, we saw it really in all the different seasons, and that was when I started to actually use the trail, per se, and, and go through by water entirely. And it wasn't until this year that I finally did the coast entirely. Mm -hmm. And at that point, I knew intimately the entire thing just because so many people I know had had traveled the trail entirely. And I heard all the stories and I put it all together in my mind and studied. But I've also had a great relationship with the Main Island Trail Association. And I have learned a ton from them about which islands they recently had acquired and what projects they were working on as far as new campsites. And so I I knew all of the updates about the trail itself and what was going on. And so it's been a process from being a kid and growing up on the coast all the way to being involved in a professional capacity and really understanding it because it's part of what I do. Right. Did you through paddle, so to speak, the entire main coast this year? I did, and one thing I should note, and then we'll get into the nitty gritty, but my goal was actually to do it as fast as possible. And I researched whether or not there had been a speed record before, and there was some word of mouth that some people had had tried to do it fast and. So I had some figures of, you know, what I thought people might have done it in as far as time. And I had my idea of what I could do it in time-wise. But for me, being a being a professional guide and, and really, you know, a kayak instructor, I wanted this added challenge of how do I, like, I have the time and the privilege of of seeing this place, in detail because i go up and down the coast and i and i can access it so i'm not as interested this time this trip my thought was in absorbing all the little detail i wanted to see can i use my knowledge and skill to actually do this as a as a race essentially against myself and and so that's that's this year was when i finally did that it was in august so i started in newcastle new hampshire so the goal was go from New Hampshire to Canada as quickly as I could. Right. So that was, but I, in doing so, I traveled the whole coast in one shot. So, right. But that was the first time I've done it. And it was very special to finally to do that. Cause it's something that's very, it's a very good goal. I think for any sea packer to do the entire coast of Maine, however that person wants to do it. I think it's a cool, it's a cool adventure to do for a lot of reasons
0: in hiking it's called a fastest known time or an fkt
1: exactly yeah yeah did you do that alone or did you do it with someone else i did it alone and i did it unsupported mm-hmm. so and that was also important to me i wanted to to be able to make on-the-fly decisions and just push it and i i just you know i being a guide and instructor i know there's When you're with someone else, especially being trained and kind of taking care of people, that I would, I just wouldn't be able to do the same things that I did if I had someone with me, just because I would be hyper aware of what was going on for them. And I I would want to make decisions with them. And I knew that I was going to have to push it pretty hard and potentially put myself at risks that I wasn't necessarily willing to put other people in, so... Right. Yeah, I can understand that. And also, I just wanted to be alone for a while. That's. Yep. <laughs> so it's sometimes hard to do, right?
0: Yep. So how many statute miles is it, approximately?
1: Well, that's back to our original conversation. Totally depends on how you slice it, but if you right. do... If you cut off all the corners... <laughs> Which you I just, assume you did. <laughs> I cut off all the corners I could... Uh, it's about it's a little over two hundred nautical miles, so about two hundred and thirty right. statue miles.
0: Yep. Yep. And how long did it take you?
1: I ended up the official time was four days, seven hours and seventeen minutes. Wow. <laughs> so I was I was moving. Yes. <laughs> <laughs>
0: wow. <laughs> <laughs> what other sorts of boats did you did you find yourself sharing it with? Now, this is 2020, so there's a pandemic underway. You, you can tell us whether that had an effect on who else was out there. But uh, obviously, you're in a kayak, which is about the smallest craft that's going to be doing this. As you said, that doesn't mean it's the least seaworthy by any means. <laughs> but what would you say is the mix of boats that are out there and uh, actually doing the the main island trail
1: well i agree your instinct is right that 2020 and the pandemic has increased the number of people on the water whether that be with their own boats or on tour boats not cruise ships they're not allowed this year but certainly tour boats i'd say when it comes to using the trail the typical boats that you encounter outside of kayaks are sailboats and small power boats, and then crew skulls. There's quite a few, it's a, you know, the sea kayak community is small. The ocean sculling community is smaller, but they exist. And they're pretty hardcore folks because it's it's a very skillful activity in, in my opinion. To be confident out on the ocean in an ocean skull, it's but they're fast and they, you know, they can really cruise. So you'll encounter those folks, and you certainly have the uh, traditional rowing community, which also a highly respectable activity just because of the physical strength it takes. But I've seen more and more people rowing dories, which yeah, it seems like an increase. I think a lot of people are getting interested in in that open open rowboats. Uh-huh. You'll see canoeists. Um, I I think people have begun the, the canoe the canoe community I, is similar to the kayak community. I think, in where there's a melding of whitewater and open water skill and equipment and technique, and you'll see that canoeists have begun to Put float bags in canoes to make them more seaworthy so they don't sink right so i've noticed a very significant increase in open water canoeing mm-hmm. which i think is pretty awesome especially i've even seen people who have war canoe style canoes you know, big fast multi-person canoes and Single i think it's rigger uh, sometimes none if they're super oh. wide but yeah i have seen without rigger and then, as you know, it sounds like you're pretty knowledgeable about paddle craft, but the Hobie Cat, that kind of thing, is, or the Hobie, uh, I think. Sorry, not the Hobie Cat. That's the sailboat. The Hobie. Uh, like. Yeah, the one that you can pedal, paddle, yep. and sail. Those are getting very popular. Yeah. And also, fishing fishing kayaks are huge now. That's a huge industry, and I think a lot of people use the trail to fish and kayak. And certainly paddleboarding is is real big now and there have been there have been people who have paddled the entire main coast with paddleboard which is quite an accomplishment because it takes a lot of skill to be out on the open ocean and a paddleboard and really Mm -hmm. move along and be safe but there's a lot of really skilled paddleboarders now so it doesn't surprise me that it's been done Mm -hmm that's really the big stuff and then you know you you mentioned boats that are using the trail but then of course you encounter a multitude of boats that are on the trail but not particularly traveling it and that the most common of course is the lobster boat in maine i mean everywhere you go (laughs) there's there's a lobster boat Yep. and the lobster person the lobster man woman or you know those folks are your one of your best resources when you're on the coast so you as paddlers we maintain the best relationship we can with that community right so those are the those are the common ones yeah
0: i know the hobie adventure island has uh in for instance in the everglades challenge which is this annual adventure race down in uh, florida uh, that has become one of the most common boats down there i think Mm -hmm. Almost 50% of the total is is Hobie Adventure Islands.
1: Whoa, if, wow.
0: If I if I was looking, because as you said, you can you can paddle, pedal, and sail all at the same time if you want on that
1: mm-hmm. boat.
0: It's not necessarily the fastest boat out there, but it it uh, you don't get stiff.
1: <laughs> for sure, and you know, for people people who want to. Right, who want versatility, and that could be because of, you know, a physical reason. You may not feel like you're in shape to paddle the whole day. It may be because of the conditions you expect to be in. I think having versatility can be a really good thing.
0: Yeah. And, of course, it has outbreakers, which is reassuring to a lot of people. Sure. Did you have time constraints when you were doing this?
1: I didn't. I had just quit my full-time job, uh, which I had yeah, so I quit uh, August eight I left my job and then August ten I started. Uh-huh. And the real time constraints were actually when I was training, just because I was still working and I needed to do a lot of physical training. But 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 for the trip I opened up the month of August really I mean I planned on being done by the end of August, but but I didn't have any constraint other than the clock i was racing against so
0: yeah. so for s- someone traveling by kayak and following the same route as you um but going at a more uh modest pace what would a normal time frame be for covering the trail the 230 miles right where if we're talking statue which is what most people are familiar with which is let's translate here, uh, about 375 kilometers, I think you could say.
1: Nice work. A Uh, true international man. Got the kilometers down. Um, Well, first, I'd say that the route I took itself is not something you would do unless you were actually trying to go fast. There's a few corners I cut that I would not recommend cutting uh, for safety reasons unless you really know what you're doing and have an interest in saving time so i would add a few miles to that for the person who is doing the trail efficiently but not super fast um so i'd say looking at more like well, just say 300 statue miles and i'd say the competent paddler would probably end up doing it in like two and a half weeks maybe to a month depending on the conditions as most people know it's very weather dependent so yeah particularly wind in a sea kayak the wind will make or break your route your time so the more days you're out there the more chance you have of having days where you aren't gonna make much progress so i think a safe so i'd say that well i'll put it this way the you know one person i know did it in 18 days another did it in five weeks so and they're both competent people and paddlers and so they just stretched it out or shortened it depending on what they were looking for but i think that if somebody were to try to set aside time to do it they would probably want to set aside at least 3 weeks just uh-huh. to really give time to let the the weather pass right. if it needs and also just especially if they haven't been on the main coast much just to really each day you know plan where they're going to go and have backup plans and have a safe place to stay at night i'd say i'd say starting with three weeks if someone can set that aside that would be a good chunk of time uh-huh. um but it is yeah so you see you know it's the wide range of times you could you could do it in a, it's very weather dependent. What are the sorry considerations? sorry for the vagueness of the answer, but no <laughs> oh, no that was that was not
0: vague. That I mean <laughs> okay. you know because there are so many variables and as you said it's not something one does in a straight line. So that this this is a trail that is defined by the stops. It's it's Ooh. water after all. So it's it's one's not following a trail on the ground which is, in a sense, the beauty of it. that The trail is simply connecting the dots in the, in the, in the manner you choose, right?
1: Mm, yeah, exactly.
0: What would you say the best season is for doing the Main Island Trail? Uh, or what are the limitations to the season and what are the considerations that would affect one's choice of timing for doing this?
1: I would say for anyone who either is... Puts himself in a competent, you know, but not maybe expert paddling range. That summer is certainly going to be a goal because of the benefit of the temperature of the water and the air. But also really for anyone, a big consideration is that in the summer, particularly the late summer, the prevailing wind is a southwesterly, which Uh will be a tailwind if you go north. If you go, yeah, if you go um, up the coast, and that's, that's one of the biggest considerations, and also that in the summer, the average sea height is the lowest. Okay. However, for people, you know, looking for interesting challenges who are competent or advanced paddlers, I think getting outside of summer, you can have quite an adventure as long as you do your homework, because, you know, the coast, you can paddle the coast in any month, and... You know, our paddling community here in Maine, we paddle every month mm-hmm. of the year and you can have some incredible, you know, a good example is a friend of mine, you know, paddled out to one of the main island trail islands in February with his cross country skis and then cross country skied the island and then camped and then paddled back. And that's <laughs> the kind of adventure, you know, some people who are, who are good outdoors people really might want. So. But as far as doing the entire coast, I would recommend really thinking about the prevailing wind because paddling into a headwind for three weeks is probably going to wear you down physically and mentally. So I I recommend late summer, Yep. so August, September-ish.
0: You've touched on the culture along the trail, but are there more cultural or historical factors that you would give special mention to?
1: Yes the coast of maine has a history of the wabanaki people the indigenous folks who lived here and still live here a lot of the names along the coast remain wabanaki and abenaki and super interesting to study that a bit and the translations of what island names are and what they mean Mm. and and how many indirect translations there are to island names that are all interesting one example is Seguin island off of Popham Beach which is a popular spot and a great place to paddle to Seguin Seguin has I think like seven translations depending on how how you interpret it that that simple word Seguin can mean probably the most Interesting one is it can mean place where the sea vomits, <laughs> but it can also mean high point. It can also mean last island out to sea or lonely island, and it's just it's all of them are true when you spend some time in and around the island. Um, so I I love to think about the Wabanaki and Abenaki and how they. How they existed in these islands and why they named them the things they did and you can find interesting historical evidence of where they lived like shell middens where they deposited shells after they ate them tetraglyphs all sorts of interesting evidence of of when they were here so that's a cool layer to kind of layer on if you have the time to read about it and yeah talk to folks from that community
0: so these tribes that were here historically um and i, I assume we're talking about colonial times and earlier mm-hmm. um those tribes what what was their primary subsistence strategy were they focused on fishing and gathering other seafood
1: mm-hmm. yeah and um yeah that was it was really from the sea they were at least you know obviously along the coast that was right very intimate with the ocean okay what sorts of boats did they use? they were open boaters to my knowledge they were not using you know Inuit style kayak they were using canoe but I that's that's my understanding uh, certainly I'm not sure what it evolved into maybe later but but they were masters of the open boat I think. Right. Maybe because Maine, you know, they were throughout Maine, and Maine has huge rivers as well, oh, and it was probably right. a really versatile okay.
0: boat. Yeah. yeah. Do you know whether they used skin-on-frame or dugout construction or what sorts of boats those were, the open boats? I
1: don't know for sure, but, yeah, and I would, I, you know, I should research that, but my instinct would say dugout just because Maine is a white pine tree state with really, you know, tall, straight pines, which would make right. sense that you would, you would and it's soft wood that you could carve. But we also have a lot of seals. So that's a great question. That just gave me something I'd like to read about. <laughs> <laughs> oh. Oh. And
0: sorry for branching into some of my little no it's, it's side interests. Uh, um, <laughs> well, let's, can you describe... The kayak
1: you used for us. Absolutely. So I I used a boat made by Seaword kayaks out of I think it's Vancouver uh-huh. and it's called the Quest, which I love the name, first of all. Love the word quest and all its meanings. But but the yeah, the Seaword Quest I I think it's had a few iterations now, but the one I the one I own is a, I think it's a 1994, so it's I, it's one of the earlier models. But I, I'm pretty sure the hull itself has been the same over the years, but they've changed the deck profile. Uh huh. It's 19 foot Kevlar expedition kayak. Right. So, you know, right off the bat, paddlers would know that's that's a fast boat. It's 19 feet and probably about 22 inches wide. So yep. it's got some speed. It has a lot of storage capacity and it's very comfortable. I I actually bought one originally. I bought a Seaward Quest last year because my friend uh, Tom Berg, who's a big popular guy in the paddling community, he had one for sale for like 200 bucks, an old fiberglass one, and I was like, I'll buy that. So I, I bought it. And I fixed it up, and I, I did a race with it, and I won the race. I was like, ooh, this boat's you know it's pretty fast. So so then I saw a Kevlar one pop up for sale on Craigslist. I went and bought it down in Rhode Island, just because I figured I like this boat and I should get get Kevlar one, a little lighter, and sold the other one to my friend. And I love that I love it. It's I have a few different kayaks, but it's the one I'll choose for camping or traveling quickly and it's it's a beautiful design and i i contacted SeaWord after i did this trip and just told them you know i'll write something up about this because i'd love for you to have some just like a story about the boat and the trail and so i'm working on that they were really appreciative of that
0: so So you gave us some idea but uh what is it like in relation to other boats that might one might use for the trip and i guess we can we can stay with kayaks and canoes
1: um in in that question but sure uh so the average sea kayak is about 16 and a half feet long when you look at true sea kayaks and so if you're just sort of out there buying and maybe you're new to the sport you're probably getting steered towards something that's an average of 16 and a half feet which is a versatile length because it's maneuverable, but it's fast enough. I'd say for the trail, if someone's doing that the whole trail, they are more likely going to be in something 17 feet or a little longer because it's just going to give them a bit more speed and tracking over, over time. Right. But it's certainly been done in shorter boats and there's nothing wrong with a shorter boat i the one consideration is just speed like once you in my opinion once you dip below like 13 feet you want to be concerned about not being fast enough for some of the winds and currents that might pick up and not being able to break through some of the the conditions that you might encounter unexpectedly so i would just say to to, you know people considering if you don't really know how to how kind of to sprint in a boat that's if you don't really feel good about your skill level then don't dip below 13 feet if you're gonna you know do a long ocean adventure I'm not sure if everyone would agree with that but it's kind of my opinion but, I but hope yeah so there's will
0: forgive any inaccuracies but i'll try to translate those into metric right off the top of my head here uh sure. 13 feet would be about four meters 16 and a half feet is almost dead on five meters and your nineteen foot boat is probably a little it's it's just under six meters. Okay, uh
1: cool. or it's it's yeah.
0: 16, yeah, it's it's getting close to six meters. Um yeah. and your twenty two inch beam would be about
1: uh fifty five centimeters wide. So right. that's a narrow boat. Um Yeah. And one thing I'll mention also is I, I'm a personally a big fan of the tandem kayak and I for a lot of reasons I think the tandem is an amazing amazing thing in the paddling world Uh, so for folks who are traveling with multiple people whether you know whatever your skill level the tandem can provide big advantages the particular ones are like your overall speed can be faster it's versatile in the sense that you know one person can be taking a break taking photos while the other person continues the momentum paddling there's it's a way to stay together uh for you know, safety reasons, if that's a consideration, you know you're you're in the same boat. They're traditionally more stable. The initial stability is much greater. So if you if you want that, it's something worth exploring. And then you know there are people who use a tandem solo because it gives you a huge storage capacity and you can still push it along at an appropriate speed. So it's it is a consideration if you. If you think, like, I really want to pack a lot of stuff, I'm going to be out there a long time. The tandem kayak is something to explore and just practice paddling it by yourself. But, yeah, I'm a big fan of of the tandems. And when you get into that, you're looking at, um, usually, like, a a short tandem is 17 feet, but I'd say the average one is about 20, and you get up to about 22 feet, so they they get much bigger than solos. Right, yeah. And then, you know, you're a um, folding boat, Person, but the, things like the Klepper can come in a tandem size as well. So if you're looking at folding boats, you can certainly get get a, a double as well.
0: Yeah, the, the most common Klepper uh, or Long Haul has a similar model uh, is the five-meter double, um, and that is the boat that was th- – the stock Klepper used by Hans Lindemann to cross the Atlantic in 1957, I believe, the first kayak to cross the Atlantic Ocean. Both Long Haul and Klepper have recently been introducing slightly longer ma- models uh, of their of their double. They've stretched them a bit over the last few years, and, and so that gives a little more space so that your paddles don't hit each other
1: <laughs> if you're not as right. experienced. Uh, Right, and yeah, in talking about ocean crossings, it's worth mentioning, too, that one of the most bizarre and amazing uh, kayak crossings was Ed Gillette's crossing of the Pacific uh, from, I think it was Monterey to Maui in 1986, and he did that in a double. It was a Neki Tofino, which you can still find them around but just an example of how the tandem, you know, in that case it gave him a traditional kayak but he had the space to store 68 days worth of food and supplies. So yeah. there is a subset in the paddling community that, you know, you use the tandem solo, so something to explore. Yeah.
0: yeah. Did you camp on on your trip? This I mean the the the, the Maine Island trail is is a is a is a, is a system of campsites but <laughs> did you camp all the way through on on the four-day trip that you did
1: i camped um, most i the only night i didn't camp was the first night i landed right near my home where my parents live so i took advantage of that and slept in a right. bed the first night but the other nights i camped right and i did not I, th- I actually only ended up using one island that is a main Island Trail Association island, um, but I did but I did camp along the way.
0: Right. Did you use any equipment that is different from your usual setup in doing this?
1: Yes, the most significant because I you know I was paddling long days. the longest day I paddled about 14 and a half hours. I needed to be eating a lot of calories, and I actually the kayak I used has a, a shelf under under the front deck. So when you open the spray skirt, you reach in, and there's a there's actually a fiberglass shelf, and I would just pack it full of <clears throat> apples and and marshmallows and protein bars so that I could easily just reach in and eat. Um, so that was one slight modification. And then I carried a sea anchor, which is not a typical thing that a sea kayaker may take. Although if you read some books, they certainly talk about them as gear if you're doing big crossings. I didn't, I didn't end up using it, but I did bring it for emergencies. If I ended up with like a heavy following sea and low energy, I would have thrown it out and slowed myself right. down. That was really the first time I've ever had a sea anchor with me. And otherwise I I packed I, I set up a hydration system that was atypical for me. I put I put a two and a half liter uh, sorry, two and a half gallon dromedary behind my seat with a tube coming up so that I could drink and that's just like way more water than I normally would have right, right. behind my seat, but I, I wanted to not have to stop and refill even from my own kayak, I wanted to just have enough water for a few days, like right behind my seat. But otherwise everything else was, you know, typical. And because I guide and I teach kayaking, I have a lot of gear that maybe, you know, some people might not have just because I'm often taking care of other people. So I I already carry a bunch of stuff that just by habit that maybe is overkill if you're alone, but I kind of kept most of it anyway, just because I'm used to having it. Um, So, you know, and that's like some of the, and I, and I recommend the, these two things for everyone, but like a Marine radio and also a Garmin Explorer inReach, that device. Right. Um,
0: And. The, the inReach is a, uh, is a GPS locator, right? So you Exactly. Yeah. You can send your location or someone can check your location and find you.
1: And I bought that thing uh, before I went to Fiji because it, you know, it has satellite connection. You can go anywhere in the world. And really, one of the best features is you can text phone numbers from it That's, and receive yeah. texts. Yeah. yeah, and so like if you, you know, if people are just want to check in with you, um, you can send text.
0: Send text but messages if, via
1: satellite, right? And it ha- obviously has a map, so like if you do get lost, you can double check. And then it's got uh, SOS buttons so you can mm-hmm. do like an ePERB style alarm right. if you need. But yeah, that's something I'd, you know, if somebody's serious about going off the grid and paddling, I would consider it. It's waterproof, right. and super durable device. Right. Uh, it's not very expensive to maintain a subscription for it. So Annual subscription, right? Yeah. Yeah, and then
0: that's uh, it's a GPS-based device, but... It also, the satellites it connects to, in other words, when you're out of reach of cell phone towers, you can use this, uh, and, and of course, there aren't cell phone towers in the middle of the ocean, so um,
1: yeah, when, you're, yeah. when
0: you're over the horizon from a cell phone tower, uh, you can still communicate, call for help, et cetera, using one of these, and as you said, send texts when you're not on the grid and arrange something or... Uh, make sure that people know where you are. Yeah. Particular skills, knowledge, abilities that you would recommend that people have in order to undertake this sort of an adventure and I would I would guess there's a range of possibilities here.
1: Yeah, I uh with sea kayaking in general, I think the most important thing is to know rescues because the sea kayak is only really a rough water boat if you know how to get back into it if you capsize and wet exit from the boat there are plenty of people who hit the water and they, they haven't actually ever attempted to get back into a kayak and right. if even if you are a terrible paddler as far as you know your forward stroke and your turning i think if you can just Start with really getting over the fear of capsize on the wet exit, assuming you know you have a spray skirt. That's something to get used to opening a spray skirt before you come out of the boat while you're upside down. That can be super intimidating for most people the first few times they try it. um, I would say that no matter where you're going, not even just on the ocean, but you know, big lakes, anywhere you're not really a comfortable swimming distance from shore you're gonna wanna know how to get into your boat if you've come out of it. And that is a thing that I highly recommend people learn through a class where they do it, not just watching videos or reading in a book because it takes muscle memory, it takes overcoming a lot of stress and fear, and it takes a lot of practice. So uh, I would, no matter what the goal is, if you're getting at all offshore, I highly recommend starting with rescues. How do I, how do I handle being out of my boat? Um, and if you're going with a group, well, how do I rescue someone else? And how do I, how does it feel to be rescued by someone else? So doing assisted and solo rescues, and there's variations on how to do that, and that's why it's good to go, you know, learn from an instructor because they they'll show you different variations. And so that's the biggest thing.
0: Yeah, and of course it applies to any boat. It applies to kayaks, canoes, sailboats, sailing dinghies or larger sailboats.
1: Um, right. The,
0: the same no, the same yeah. principle applies. Uh, sure,
1: yeah. What does it feel like to capsize a sailboat? Absolutely. How do you get it back up? But yeah, and I wanna emphasize like that's, it can be really frightening to to intentionally flip yourself upside down in a kayak the first few times and even later. So that's why you've got to practice because you really don't want to have to try to figure it out in the worst case scenarios because you just won't have the energy and the muscle memory to, to figure out how to do it. Right. Um, not to mention the balance. So, yeah, that's number one. And then I would say, um, you know, this kayaking like any other physical activities, you can always be learning more no matter how good you think you are, there's more to be learned and more to practice. Um, I would just say, uh, you know, being someone who spent a lot of time self-teaching and learning from books before I actually started taking instruction, I would just recommend taking instruction from a real-life person uh, because, first of all, you don't want to get lost in your own ego and think, you know, you're, you're learning and you know all these things when in reality you've kind of been in a vacuum and... You may have figured out what works for you, but you haven't ever actually been assessed and given feedback. But yeah, having somebody observe you and just impart feedback and and coaching, and it's so, so valuable because there really are standards now. There's standards about technique and safety with technique and just best practices. And there are just so many good instructors out there. And it's really not that expensive in the grand scheme of things to take classes it's done most places in a way that's affordable. So I would just really recommend, if you can, learning in person. And then if you do want to go to go to the internet, just there's there's good there's good videos and there's not so good videos. And I would just recommend that you um, you look at the right channels if you're going to be looking at techniques. Because and I can certainly recommend some. For folks who maybe are like yourself, maybe you're overseas and you're not really in a spot where you're able to take classes, but you want to learn by by watching. You know, there's different scenarios where you might. You know, I have students, too, where I'm like, let's do this today. And then I'm also going to give you a link to some videos because I think it's good to watch also like any athletic activity because your mind can capture the motion through watching. Right. Uh, Getting. Getting to and from this trail
0: and you know so so someone might be coming from you know there there are a a number of possible scenarios here uh someone might arrive in their own car with their own kayak on top or someone might fly into boston from europe and be hoping to do this but need to figure out uh, ahead of time how they could get the logistics together so how did you manage access to the coast with the boat?
1: One thing that's good news is that the, the Maine coast is highly accessible, I think, compared to other spots. Uh, no offense to Connecticut, but using Connecticut as an example, you may, you may want to get to the ocean and you can't really figure out how, uh, just because of the way it's developed over time. But, but at Maine, you have public access up and down the coast, the best way to, or maybe I should say, one of the best ways to look at that is the main. Some some pronounce it gazetteer, the other is gazetter, but it's the uh, the map book that's produced by Delorum. Was I don't know. Yeah. Delorum, does Delorum still exist? Garmin. I'm not sure, two. but
0: I know the book you're talking about. Right. Was. I
1: think. I'm not sure if it still says DeLorme on the cover or Garmin, but, you know, same same idea, same book. And yeah. the book is is a beautiful book of maps that shows you coastal access really well. The big consideration if you're traveling in to Maine is, you know, where do you park? Because if you're going to leave your vehicle for several weeks, you're going to want to really um, know. Yes. Uh, and, and, you know, if you don't have a vehicle, then... How do I I get my boat and my gear to the shore? But getting to the shore itself is not going to be super challenging. Really, in any section of the main coast, there are public boat ramps um, that you can use. And just follow, like, basic consideration of staying out of the way of boats launching on trailers. And there's usually beaches nearby that you can use, like, next to the boat ramps. I would suggest, if somebody was coming from out of state, contacting one of the paddling companies along the coast to ask about, you know, give sort of your itinerary and ask you about access and parking, depending on where you want to start. Um, Most people who want to do the whole coast are obviously starting down around Portsmouth, New Hampshire, or Kittery, Maine, and so you would want to You'd wanna contact the people down there. And one way to look at who is active right now along the coast of Maine is there's a organization I'm involved with called Maine Association of Sea Kayak Guides and Instructors. And we have a website where it shows all the participating outfitters where you where they are and gives contact info. So you can mm-hmm. I would I would contact them because sea kayaking companies in Maine are really open to discuss you know without trying to sell you something or try to get you on a tour like they'll they'll definitely just want to discuss like your plan and um, where you could park and um, want to help you out without it needing to be a business transaction like i think that it's one of those communities where we're all we really would want to like jump in and participate uh just out of interest in paddling so so this yeah it's mostly good news you can get to the coast you just right. kind of have to figure out what you're leaving behind and is it safe or is it going to get towed away or <laughs> yeah you know the access is good you're not going to be able to take a train to
0: the to the access you're going to have to use a private car mm-hmm. uh, and although logistics of what to do with that private car become much of the issue
1: yeah now that you mentioned train though we do actually have a train from boston that that arrives in dover new hampshire which isn't far from the beginning of the trail so in theory you could take a train to dover and then actually get to kittery or portsmouth it's about oh gosh it's only like less than 10 miles i think so yeah yeah um but obviously you'd have to have gear so
0: so you you gave us some leads on on books and maps and and actually in terms of the information on the trail itself. You said uh, when we were starting that joining the Mita organization, you get access to their smartphone app, and I think what other information do they do they have to give you uh, to help you with the logistics?
1: They have a hard copy of a guide to the whole coast, which huh. includes a, several pages on like when you lead into a section of the coast they divide it up by sections it will tell you considerations so everything from safety to wildlife what's going on a little even a little bit of history about that section of the coast and then it'll go into the islands themselves and show you maps and details about uh, where to land where to camp who might be on the island as well if it's an island where someone lives um and it's a very good it's a very good book to have with you in case you don't get access to the to the app it's easy to flip through it's spiral bound so you can open it easily but you know mita mita once again is main island trail association mita is also, a group of people who, back to what we were just talking about, you can ask them questions, and they they want to help. There's so many instances where people either wanted to do an expedition or had just started an expedition and ran into trouble, uh-huh. and contacted Mita, and they they want to kind of keep people safe, but also promote the trail, and you know they'll they'll help. They'll give you all kinds of information, additional to what you would get with a membership, um, just by reaching out they will certainly connect connect you with the right resources and other people you might want to talk to. So I cannot speak highly enough about Mita. They are really a group of people who care about the main coast and care about access to it and uh, you know leave no trace ethics and doing like experiencing the coast in a way that's safe and that you have a full experience. So there's there's my MITA plug in full. <laughs> Sounds good. Give them a call. <laughs> yep.
0: Any other safety, security, health concerns? Uh we talked about self rescuing uh in a boat, but uh any other sorts of uh concerns that need to be considered? Wildlife, of course sea life. <laughs> you know, concerns about uh, when you're on islands, I mean, rattlesnakes, I don't know. What else would you throw out there for people to think about that, that they wouldn't necessarily think about?
1: Well, first I'll just say that, you know, one of the philosophies we have uh, teaching about sea kayaking is if you kind of think of these three categories, if you think about uh, skill, equipment, and conditions as three separate categories, and you can kind of get away with a deficiency in one if you have the other two but when you start to have a deficiency in two or more you can run into trouble so if you think about like what are what is my skill level what are the conditions and what is my equipment start there and fan out but i'd say you know we did spend a lot of time on self-rescue but there's a ton of other stuff i probably i would say the biggest thing outside of just skill is like what's going on in the weather and the sea and how do you plan to? Uh, what do you? What is the language you're reading to understand that? So what is your? What is the forecast you're reading? Where are you getting your data about what's currently happening as far as conditions? And do you get it? Like, do, can you interpret that in a way that makes sense? Um, so, it, for instance, if you're looking at, like, we have data buoys all around the world that tell you what's currently happening, right? What's the wave height? The, wind speed, the wind direction, the swell height versus the wind wave height, the water temperature, this list of information, it's good to be at the point where you can glance at that. And like any other language, it just it tells you something, right? That you interpret. And that relates to like, do I want to paddle today? And if I do, what will it be like? And I've been in that before. I have never been in that. And then the forecast itself, what does it mean? What does it mean to me and my trip? So not just looking at the terrestrial forecast, not just looking at what's the temperature and is there a sun or is there a little angry cloud, but looking more at the marine forecast, right? What is the sea height? What is the wind direction? And knowing what that means. That's super important to sea kayaking the coast of Maine. And then, of course, the tide. The tide in Maine is very significant. So you want to know what it's doing and how what that means to your trip. So that's the kind of the condition side. And then you mentioned the wildlife side. You know, fortunately, most of the coast of Maine, the considerations with wildlife are more about protecting the wildlife and not yourself. So a lot of that is the leave no trace ethics. Like, how do I not scare all the seals off a ledge? Like, it may seem cool to go check out the seals because they're cute and they're on the ledge. But if I scare all of them off the ledge, then have I just, you know, killed a seal pup by accident because one of them got crushed when the seals were rushing off the ledge or, you know, that was their chance to get all their body heat for the day. Did I just ruin it? You know, considerations like that. I'll just put this out there. This year, as maybe you heard, we had our first confirmed shark fatality in Maine, and there's been a lot of talk about it, and it's certainly impacted the paddle industry. This happened off Harpswell in Casco Bay, and it was an ocean swimmer who got attacked by a great white shark. So I won't sugarcoat it and say like it's you know shark-free waters. It's not as common as Cape Cod or other places you may go that you you know would encounter a shark, but they do now, thanks to ocean warming and food patterns, we have sharks in Maine. So you do want to know that and be comfortable with what that means. As paddlers, it's very rare that that would ever, that a shark would actually attack and harm a kayaker just because um, you know they go by smell and they go by texture and you know a kayak doesn't smell like anything and it's usually pretty solid so even if they were to bite it they probably would immediately leave but if you like have an open wound and you're bleeding into the water who knows but i won't spend a ton of time on that because it's really a small consideration but it's a big fear so for a lot yeah, of
0: people yeah that's the thing it's i the shark concern is a big fear but statistically it's it's vanishingly small threat Uh, right so that that's something to really be clear about
1: yeah and then i'd say um once you're on land you know i i often say when i'm teaching kayaking that almost all of the injuries i've had where i actually had to do first aid were on land not on the water because when a paddler gets out of the kayak they often they're either tired or they don't realize they're stepping on seaweed and uh, slime and suddenly they just you know flip backwards fall on the ground cut their leg open on a barnacle and now they've got an infection concern and they're in a remote place so thinking about like okay i'm on land now but i still i'm still in the outdoors you know i'm Now I'm hiking. (laughs) So so I I I need to keep my wits about me just because my day's over paddling, like I still need to be careful. And then of course, you know, poison ivy, poison sumac, ticks. Ticks are a huge concern in Maine. I mean, our islands have deer, because deer swim to the islands, so we have deer ticks, and we have Lyme disease, and we have other illnesses that come from ticks now. So once you're on the island, you're not necessarily done for the day, right? And Then I would say, um, you know, we've talked a lot about Leave No Trace, just also back to considering your impact. Sometimes once you're on the island, you kind of want to spread out and build a big fire and just warm up and do whatever. But realizing that the islands in Maine are all pretty small, not a lot of soil, so just continue to take care, even when you're tired and you want to relax, just take care of, you know, what you're doing on the island and not really like ripping trees down and setting big fires, but just low impact, no impact ideally. So um, those are big considerations. I'll just say also that um, we talked a bit about it, but the, the main coast, as remote as it is, there are a lot of boats. And if you're traveling the trail in a small boat, uh, you do want to know the rules of the road you wanna know what other boats are doing and what, what are the appropriate maneuvers that you take if a boat's approaching you or you know, does the boat see me? I highly recommend knowing how to use a marine radio so you can talk to boats. You can do security calls when you're doing crossings. If you're in the fog, you can tell people where you are. Really think about your place in this busy, often busy, um, busy space where there's a lot of traffic. And You know, that's like a whole other component to an island trail is seamanship, as we call it, just knowing knowing all these basics about what do I do on the ocean? How do I behave and how do I talk to people on a radio and uh, how do I even say, you know, maritime terms when they're appropriate? You know, you're going to start hearing things like aft and bow and stern and lee. (laughs) all these words, you know, you want to quickly know what it means. So that's just some other stuff to right. study. Assuming one has already gotten oneself to Maine, <laughs> what what are the
0: costs for a trip like this? And I've, I mean the variables are so many here. So assuming one already has one's boat lined up mm-hmm. and and the vehicle question we'll, we'll count that out as well. You're camping, so it's just the supplies that you would have and. Is there anything that you spend money on along the way?
1: I'm sure there's a range, quite a significant range, depending really on comfort. I think comfort would probably be the biggest factor, right? If you, there's people who travel the coast and they do bed and breakfast, you know, instead of camping, but you've obviously specified camping. I just want to throw that out there that, you know, right? there's no rule about where you stay. It's your trip. If you want to splice in a bed and breakfast every now and then to take a shower and, have someone else make you breakfast by all means splice that in there i'd say you know one of the other beautiful things about paddling is it's once you have the gear the gear can be expensive right and you can find used stuff and cut the costs and once you have the gear um it's so inexpensive i mean access is almost always free to getting on the water the islands are are free if you join mita You have free access to all of their islands. Um, You do need membership for certain islands. I actually don't know the current rules about all of that, but I would certainly check with them. I I think it's 30 bucks a year right now for MITA membership, so honestly, I just think it's worth it because then you have that access. You don't have to check, and you get all those resources we talked about. So yeah, food. I mean, it depends on how you eat, but I do recommend taking a little care with what you get for food i mean it's easy to just buy a bunch of power bars and you know try to make it cheap well i guess power bars aren't the cheapest thing but (laughs) you know it's easy to like go cheap with food but i do recommend really considering like a a lot of the being well-rounded in what you eat just because it is a long time and you're using your body and you really want to think about like all the vitamins you need and protein and And I think if you're going to spend money, you should actually spend it on good food because it's going to also make you happy. Oh, gosh. But, yeah, if you want to figure for how much you would spend, that's going to be tough for me. Um, I honestly think for one person, for doing the whole coast of Maine, I mean, you probably are going to still be under well under 500 bucks if you even buy good food and, you know, buy like some extra gear you might need, buy some charts. I think it's a really... Co- the cost to experience ratio is incredibly good. Well, you talked, my, my next
0: question is, uh, how are you able to make space for this in your life? And, and you did it between jobs. Where do you learn about new places to
1: paddle or new places to experience? Um, honestly, uh, nowadays, I, I'm kind of a satellite geek i love looking around using the satellite imagery of the earth and i have also that's why i got interested in the fiji trip i just i was literally just looking at islands and i saw an island that looked like it would be amazing to paddle around and it's kind of a maybe a different way to do things but i look at the texture of a place with the satellite and look at the towns and the cliffs and the reefs and just think like what would that be like to paddle? And I recommend that for anyone who's got a little free time and a computer just sort of looking at the satellite. It, it's it's really a resource that we have nowadays, this imagery. And then sometimes I'll see a place on a trip. For instance, my next trip that's planned is uh, Grand Manan Island in Canada, because right. on the end of this trip, I, I looked out at it and I saw these massive cliffs that just look incredible. And so some friends of I, friends of mine and I are planning to go out there next year and, and paddle around it, which is a pretty reasonable trip. I think it's like 30 miles total. And that's so, the island that's right
0: on the border between the, the
1: U.S. and the, and Canada, right? Exactly, yeah, right at the mouth of the Bay of Fundy. So you get really big tides and big ocean conditions. So it does take some skill and planning to, to, to do it, but I think it's certainly been done by paddlers and It's a reasonable trip if you do a little homework. Right. So, yeah, sometimes you just see something or you hear about it, of course. You know, somebody says, I did this. You get interested. But I would just, you know, you seem like this type of person, too. I'd be creative and draw outside the lines. You know, nowadays there's pre-established trails. And not to divert from our topic, you know, we're talking about a pre-established trail. But I do think if you're looking for adventure, sometimes drawing your own trail is kind of fun if you're careful about it
0: well this is this is an interesting sort of the the different you know I've been talking about hiking trails before on this and the different nature of water where it's not it's it's more free form and uh, there are plenty of navigable waterways as well but
1: absolutely yeah
0: what is the uh, what is the trip
1: that you dream of doing? It's a very difficult question, I guess because I have so many but I've narrowed down. My current dream trip is actually to paddle around Sicily. I just, I, it's one of the ones where I looked at the satellite and I looked at the island. I have Italian heritage and I, there's just something about it that seems like it'd be so interesting. And I believe I, in in looking, in looking around, they, I actually saw that somebody paddled around in a (laughs) clepper. So just another plug for (laughs) clepper. But, um, but it just looks like it would be a very interesting place to explore by kayak. So that's my current circumnavigation dream is just go paddle around Sicily. And then one other one that's a little more dramatic would be uh, Sri Lanka. I actually think that would be a really cool trip because it's that island just looks like it would be pretty wild and interesting. And the culture would also be really fascinating to get into. Yeah, those are kind of two big ones that I pondered so but circumnavigations
0: of islands seems to be a theme here
1: Um, it's kind of a thing in paddling you know if you if you look at the history of modern sea kayaking and you look at current paddlers oftentimes on the resume are circumnavigations and i think it's just a very tangible thing to do it kind of shows you know you you did a complete loop of a certain place and it you know depending on the size of the island it involves really getting into the culture of that island right i mean you've got to go there and camp and it's classically just been a thing everything from ireland iceland you know freya Hofmeister, and australia you know places that are yep. gigantic and it just you it's just a way to have a very defined beginning and end yep. to your trip that's kind of my thought is that it's it's very tangible. Do you have an online presence that you care to share? or I am right now in a um, pretty low online presence phase. I, I haven't been on social media just for various reasons. I do have a, a relatively new medium account that I hope to be posting a bit more on. It's a little bit more on the literary side, but I, I am going to post about this last trip and it's just at Tide Flood T I D E F L O O D on Medium, which is, you know, a place to post stories essentially. Yeah, and otherwise, uh now I just um I've tried to stay offline. Right. <laughs> I'm one of those people who's yeah, is trying to be more in the real world. So when it comes to teaching kayaking and stuff, I, I do it through companies, so I don't really even have my own, you know, website or anything like that. But we'll see. Maybe I'll have a healthy presence at some point. Yeah. Well, thank you very
0: much for talking with us on this podcast and and sharing all this information about paddling in Maine, paddling in other places, and about the, the Maine Island Trail. You are most welcome. It's been a pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you for listening to the Trails Around the World podcast. Please visit us online at trailsaroundtheworld.com, and please join our Facebook group under the same name. If you liked this podcast, please help us out by leaving a review on your favorite podcast source, such as Apple Podcasts. This is Sky King, and I look forward to you joining us next time. In the meantime, happy trails to you, and please remember to leave no trace as you enjoy the outdoors. (laughs) you <laughs>